Church, if you could please open up to the book of Micah, chapter 2. The book of Micah, chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I'm going to read an excerpt from a book. Um, this book I love. I say that a lot. I love a lot of books. I really, really like this book. Initially, it was assigned to me for a class in school. And what I really liked about it was it was small and thin. And so I thought, great. I love this kind of reading for school. This, do not let this be deceptive. This is a very powerful book. It's called The Purity Principle, written by Randy Alcorn. And uh, it's God's Safeguards for Life's Dangerous Trials. And it talks about how to live a life of purity. This is good for men and women, but especially he writes uh, to men in this book about how to remain pure. And the purity principle is uh, simple. Purity is always, and I believe the word he uses is stupid. Purity is all, uh, impurity is always stupid. Purity is always smart. So that's the principle. He unpacks it. But he makes a statement in this book that has stuck with me since I've read it and uh, that I think is just really profound that I think that we see unpacked here in Micah chapter 2. Here's what he says starting on page 16. And afterwards, I'll leave this book down front here. Uh, Wives, if you want a gift that your husband may not want you to give him, but that will be beneficial to him, buy this book and make him read it, okay? I really, really like this book. Uh, Randy Alcorn writes this on starting on page 16. A holy God made the universe in such a way that actions true to his character and the laws derived from his character are always rewarded. Actions that violate his character, however, are always punished. He rewards every act of justice. He punishes every act of injustice. Now, that doesn't mean God always intervenes directly. This moral law is like the law of gravity. God has set it in place, and when a careless driver speeds on an icy mountain pass, loses control, and plunges his car off a cliff, God doesn't suddenly invent gravity to punish the driver's carelessness. Gravity is already in place. In the same way, God doesn't need to punish the pornography addict for every wrong choice. The punishment is built into the sin. Shame, degradation, and warping of the personality follow as a matter of course. Scripture describes those who have surrendered to their lust to live in immorality as, quote, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error, Romans 1.27. That's the way God's moral universe operates. We get to choose our own path, but with each path comes inevitable consequences. The punishment is built into the sin from the beginning. God has designed his moral universe in such a way that sin carries with it inevitable consequences. It's built into the design. These consequences can vary depending on the specific sin, but then there's also general consequences for sin in general. It's built into the system. So here's our main idea this morning. Rebellion against God comes at a cost. Its toll affects both the self and others. Rebellion against God comes at a cost. Its toll affects both the self and others. Our current series is Who is Like Our God? Out of the book of Micah. It's a word play from Micah's name, which means who is like Jehovah, who is like Yahweh. In chapter 1, we saw a holy God who punishes Israel's idolatry. 
And in chapter 2 this week, we're going to see a just God. Who is like our just God who puts a price on rebellion? So if you were there, Micah chapter 2, I'm going to invite everyone to stand together for the reading of God's holy word, just as a reminder that this is indeed the holy, inerrant, infallible word of God for us. Micah chapter 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are, his, are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Let's pray. Holy God, as we approach you through your word this morning, we ask for you to perform a supernatural feat in our midst, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, what you say through your people through your word. Lord, would you speak to us mightily of the greatness of our sin, but of the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, our King. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. It's important to remember with our passage this morning that chapter 2 follows chapter 1. Now, this book, like many of the other prophets, is not a single sermon that Micah gave. A lot of the prophets are multiple messages of the prophet that were compiled together by an editor. Some say in this book that there are over 20 small messages of Micah. Some divide them into three units. But regardless, they were written down and compiled in this order for a reason. So it matters that chapter 2 follows chapter 1 where we read about the coming destruction of this holy God. 
Last week we saw his transcendence, the God who melts the mountain as he descends to man. Such a God surely is not concerned with us puny humans, right? It's God versus the idolatrous nations, and there's no question who will win. But then we come to chapter 2, and suddenly the camera zooms in. We're still talking about this holy, transcendent God. We're still talking about idolatrous Israel, but now it's zoomed in on a personal level. We shift from God speaking about the rebellious nations, now to God speaking about rebellious people. In Micah chapter 2, we see that rebellion against God comes at a cost. There's a price to pay for rebellion. Specifically this morning, we will look at four costs together. The price of arrogance, the price of ignorance, the price of indulgence, and the price of deliverance. So number one, the price of arrogance, verses 1 through Five, right off the bat here in verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. We see the clear shift now. We are not talking about the nation, but those who dwell in the nation. Woe to those. Those who what? Those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. This first verse sets the tone for the whole rest of the chapter. And really, I would argue, for the whole rest of the book of Micah. When we think of Micah, a lot of us think to that famous verse, Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you but to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? We think of the call of Micah towards justice. Well, why does he call them towards justice in Micah 6? Because we see in Micah 2 that God's people are a people of injustice. Since Israel has rebelled against her just God, she has become a people of injustice. And as soon as they have the opportunity to do evil, they do it. Look at the second half of verse 1. When the morning dawns, they perform it. Why? Because it is in the power of their hand. If we were to ask the question differently, why did you do that act of evil? Imagine someone answering, because I could. That's what he's saying here. It is in the power of their hand Therefore, they do it. Sin is already alive within them. It is just looking for an opportunity to express itself. This is kind of similar to Paul's argument in the book of Romans. When he says the law itself is not evil. Rather, sin shows its sinfulness in that when the law was present, now we see that sin is a lawbreaker. The law reveals to us how wicked sin is. It knows the law and it rebels anyway. One reason that we don't recognize the extent of our own sinfulness is because we simply, many times, have not had the opportunity to exercise it in full force. We never really know what we're capable of until we're given the opportunity to do it, until we are able to do it. I was talking with a good friend of mine once that I worked with a couple of churches ago about being rich and what that might be like. We're doing a building project, and we're thinking, man, what could we do with all this money that we're putting towards this building? And so we had the discussion, if we were rich, how would we take that money and use it for the Lord? And so it was like, well, man, if I had a million dollars, this is how I would do it. I would put this money, and of course, I'm in student ministry. So I'm like, I would take half of it, and it would go to the student ministry. <laughs> and we would make sure to do that, you know, really good. And we'd take this amount and put it this way. And then it gets to him, and he says this, I'd like to think that I would use my money this way or that way, 
But you know, as I think about it, God has not given that money to me yet. It might be because he knows what I would do with it, and that's not it. I got to thinking about it, and he was right. We may think we know what we would really do or what would happen here or what we could never do. I I would never do that. I could never do that. But we never really know until we are put in that position. Israel now has the power. God has blessed them in the promised land, and they are taking his blessing and using it to sin. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, we see the sin of covetousness. They covet their neighbor's belongings, and when they have an opening, they take them. It's like they look kind and loving on the outside, but on the inside, they're waiting for an advantage to pop up so they can take it. They're waiting for a weak moment. Oh, their neighbor's in need. They need a loan. Well, I tell you what, use your property as collateral. And they're taking advantage of one another because they covet their fields. They look good on the outside, but they are simply waiting for an opportune time to take advantage of a situation for their own personal gain. So in verse 3, God turns the tables. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster. Now, this is a play on words. If you look back to verse 1, woe to those who devise wickedness. Well, what is God going to do? Verse 3, he's going to devise disaster. My Bible gives me a little footnote here, very convenient. You see, if you have an ESV, that little one, look at the bottom. The same Hebrew word can mean evil or disaster, depending on the context. So you don't need a seminary degree to see the deeper meaning behind the text. They give it to you right here. So it's like God is saying, you were devising wickedness, I will devise wickedness. I'm going to turn it around on you. You were devising this harm for people, I am devising judgment for you, is what he is saying. And what's described in verses 3 through 5 is an utter reversal of fortune. They're losing their land. You will not walk haughtily anymore in verse 3. Verse 5, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. You will have none to mark your territory anymore. Your land that you so diligently planned to steal will be taken from you. This word haughtily is really easy to look past here. In verse 3, you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. But I believe this word is crucial for understanding what's happening to Israel here. Haughtiness is defined as arrogant superiority or showing disdain of those who seem unworthy. This is what Israel is doing. They are walking in this way, and God's saying, when I send judgment, you won't be like that anymore. I will correct your arrogance When they take advantage of one another's weak moments for personal gain, what they're exposing is an inflated view of self at the expense of others. I'm going to take advantage of you because I really want that. It will benefit me. This is important. Why would they do that? Their prideful rebellion against God costs them their humility. It's baked into the system. When you rebel against God's authority, it's built into the system. I'm the authority. And when I am the authority, and that's not really true, I begin to elevate myself above. It's built in. You can't escape it. Pride is the essence of rebellion, is it not? 
You've decided, I won't be under somebody else. I will be the one in charge. They are arrogant because of their rebellion. And this is still the same case today. Those who do not follow God, when confronted about sin, many times respond with, well, who are you to tell me? Who are you to tell me that? We even do this as Christians. Who are you to tell me? Yet they're not really mad at you, the messenger. They are mad at the message God has declared. Ultimately, they are the ones in charge of their own lives. Arrogance. Inflated sense of importance. Every time we sin, every single time, it's as though we are fertilizing arrogance in our life. And as we see in this passage, that arrogance doesn't just affect us. It takes advantage of others. There's an impact and an effect of this sin on the world around us. When we exalt ourselves, we are necessarily thinking of others as beneath us, leading us to take advantage of them or act for our benefit at their expense. When we sin, it is rebellion against God that says, I don't care what God says, and I don't care how it affects others. Arrogance is one of the prices of rebellion that affects both self and others. That's the first price to be paid. The second price is the price of ignorance. Verses 6 through 7. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Now in the Hebrew here, there are not quotation marks. We see it in English, real easy. There they are. There, there, there. Okay? We don't have that in the Hebrew. So how do we know where to put the quotation marks? Context. That's how we do it. Context. What do all the words around this say, and what do we, where do we think that they should go? And the reason I bring that up is because in this passage, actually, generally, there is a widespread consensus. But in this passage, these two verses have been historically difficult to discern. It's a little difficult. The good news is, no matter where you place the quotes in this passage, the point still remains. Israel has grown tired of listening to preaching that they don't want to hear. They've grown tired of it. One famous example of this is in 1 Kings 22. If a prophet says something they don't like, they tell him to say something else. Prophesy differently. In 1 Kings 22, Ahab is the king of Israel, and he had surrounded himself with prophets, as many as 400, to tell him what he wanted to hear. And Micaiah, this is different from Micah, Micaiah, he frequently prophesied differently, and the king came to hate this prophet. So he stopped asking him to prophesy. He would ask these prophets, but not this one. And finally, Jehoshaphat came up and said, well, look, you really need to ask all the prophets before we go into battle. And he asked the prophets, and they said, yes, king, God will deliver you. Go. He says, green light. And Jehoshaphat says, no, you need to wait. Are there any other prophets? He says, well, there's just Micaiah, but I hate it when he prophesies to me. He never prophesies what I want to hear. And he says, go ask him. And he sends this messenger to Micaiah, and the messenger tells Micaiah, hey, by the way, here's what the other prophet said. This is just so you know what to say. Micaiah says this, what the Lord says to me, 
that I will speak. And he gets to Ahab, and you don't see it in the text. It's kind of confusing if you don't understand he's being sarcastic. But he comes up to Ahab, and Ahab says, okay, tell me, should I go against this nation? And Micaiah's response is, yes, king, go. You will be delivered and saved. And the king responds, I knew it. Why do you always have to respond negatively? He's being sarcastic. He's mocking the king. What is it you want me to say, king? And then he tells him what will actually happen. And Ahab's arrogance, and now we're going to see in just a moment, his ignorance will have a devastating effect on the whole nation. Instead of being a humble learner before the Lord, he wanted to be the one calling the shots. He didn't want the truth. He wanted to dictate the truth. This is the truth I want to hear. He was not a learner. And because he wasn't, he became ignorant. No knowledge. What is the cost of a rebellious posture? It's ignorance. Look at verse 7 here. Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Though the ESV doesn't have quotes around this, I'm inclined to read this as coming from the rebellious Israelites. They're saying Micah's message is God's patience has grown short. He's going to judge you. And then rebellious Israel says, has God grown impatient? He's a patient God. Is that what he's like? Are these really God's deeds? Look how blessed we are. Is he really capable of this? In effect, they're saying we're not going to be overrun. God hasn't changed into an impatient God. God doesn't act this way. And then in response to their ignorance, Micah responds with a nod back to the covenant. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly. Let me paraphrase what he's saying. Why are you worried about my warnings? If you were walking uprightly, you would have nothing to be afraid of. So what's the big deal? He's exposing their guilt, exposing their injustice. They have not rightly understood God. Yes, God is patient, and yes, God is good and kind to his people, but they have forgotten God's patience has a limit. Patience is not the same thing as complete negligence. Patience always has an end. I will be patient for a season. There are certain things I will be less patient for. There are certain things I'll be more patient for. And our God is ultimately patient. But I know that his patience has an end because I know on judgment day there is a heaven and there is a hell. There is a reward and there is a punishment. So necessarily, we know there's a limit. It's just a matter of where is the limit. And you know what we want to do as sinful people? We want to push that limit to the extreme. (laughs) Oh, it's God's patience, okay. That's what we see Israel doing. But yes, God's patience does have a limit. God's deeds do include deeds of punishment, not just blessing. Just because you don't experience punishment the moment you sin doesn't mean God has suddenly changed. They would have known this if they had humbled themselves and listened to the prophets as they preached. But due to the nature of rebellion, they were destined for ignorance from the very beginning. They've already rejected God's authority, so they don't want to hear what the prophet has to say. Now again, we do the very same thing. We don't like to hear what we don't like to hear. Or am I the only one? (laughs) I don't. (laughs) I don't like to hear what I don't want to hear. 
Usually that's correction. I tell you what I love to hear is praise. Good job, Garrett. I love that. I really don't like to hear correction. Sometimes I avoid it. We don't want to hear what we don't want to hear. However, our own rebellious ignorance here is sometimes a little more difficult to discern. I can't recall the last time that I've ever heard someone in church stand up and say, preacher, stop saying that. Like this. We don't see that here. Hey, do not preach. Don't preach this way. We're fine. I've never seen anybody do that in the church. Rather, what we do is a little more subtle. Or even as we read the Bible, it's a little more subtle. What we do instead, we begin to dictate what we want preached and what we want to study in the Bible. Hey, preach us something like this, pastor. Hey, get me this kind of devotion. I want a sports devotional. I want a marriage devotional. Now, here's the danger here. These types of preaching and devotionals oftentimes are not filled with things that are false. They're filled with things that are good. But this type of selective study or topical preaching will take its toll on the health of an individual Christian and on a church. For the Christian, while such an approach to reading the Bible will not necessarily teach you anything wrong, though it could, the problem is that such a diet on a regular basis will make you incomplete. If I had a choice, we would never eat broccoli. I wouldn't. <laughs> if I had a choice, I would never eat it. Praise God I have a wife that says you're eating broccoli today. Because I would never default to that. If I'm the one that gets to decide what the healthy diet is, I'm in trouble. I would drink a Dr. Pepper or two every day of the week. 110% of your daily sugar right there. I'd drink five of them a day. I love them. I would be incomplete. The Bible is not ultimately a marriage guide, a financial guide, a guide to wise living, or any other such topic, though it certainly speaks to all of those things. The Bible is not ultimately a book about us, but a book about God. That doesn't mean it doesn't speak authoritatively over these things. It means that's not primarily what it's about. But when we regularly turn to this book as though it's that type of book, we're setting ourselves up for error. Anything the Bible speaks to or about us must necessarily be understood in light of who God is and what he does. To read it any other way is to miss out on the most important purpose of the scriptures. You may receive true information this way. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying automatically throw out all your devotionals. I'm not saying that. They can be good, helpful, and true. But when this is our regular diet of the scriptures, when we choose to only study the Bible in this limited way, we deprive ourselves of the whole truth. And we begin to develop biblical ignorance by only studying what we want to study. This is why the studies are showing that biblical literacy among Christians is in decline. 
Christians know the Bible less and less. Why is that? In part, probably because of our preachers that are not preaching God's word fully. We preach what people want to hear. I don't want to hear a message out of the book of Micah, Garrett. I don't want to hear a message out of the book of Genesis. I don't want to hear a message out of this book or that book or whatever. In part, it's because in our personal study of God's word, we have replaced this with something like this. As good as this is, this is no substitute for this. Give me one or the other, it's not a question. I don't need this. I need this. I need all of it. That's for the Christian. But what about for the church? In topical preaching, the pastor knows what he wants to say and then searches the Bible for corresponding passages. I had a pastor relatively recently, I think. We were talking, and he had a three-word, uh, a three-word, a three-letter um, what do you call that, where each letter represents something? Acronym, okay. I'm not a reading person here, but I love reading the Bible. Three-letter acronym, it was like fun or something. And then each letter stood for something. God is blank, God is blank, God is blank. He said, man, that'll make a good sermon. There's your next outline right there. He already, he already had the outline before he looked at the text. He's like, that's in there somewhere. We gotta find that. I'm gonna write that down. Pulled out his notepad and made a note of it. Put it away. He already knows what he's going to say before he goes to a text. Do you know how dangerous that is? Do you know how many times I've been in sermon prep thinking, oh, I know this passage, piece of cake, and I walk away thinking, I have never seen that before. <gasps> have you ever walked to a passage and thought one thing? <clears throat> Excuse me. Have you ever walked to a passage and thought one thing and then walked away thinking, I had that completely backwards? I'm not, I'm not too prideful to admit I have, even in my teaching ministry. I look at a passage and I walk away and I think, whoa, I had that wrong. I had that backwards. This type of preaching doesn't necessarily feed you lies. The problem is that it sets the bar far too low. Instead of conforming to the mind of God, it encourages conformity to the mind of the preacher. It is too far low. Think about it. If the preacher ever only looks in the Bible for what he already knows, he will never find something that he doesn't know to preach. You are only growing to the level of wisdom of maturity that your pastor has. And that is not my desire for you. My desire is that you would be more knowledgeable than me. You get this preaching one day a week, but you have six other days of time in God's Word, just like I do. What we really need is for our pastors to preach expositional sermons. You may have heard this word before. It's a fancy word that comes from the word expose. It exposes. What does it expose? This. Expositional preaching says, let me expose God's word to you. Here's what it says. Tell us what the word of God says, preacher. Expose it to us. All of it. Do you see that truth isn't good enough? Grass is green is true, but that's not God's word. We want the truth of God's word. We don't want to be like the Israelites that say, do not preach. Instead, preach this which we see further down. If someone would preach to you of wine and strong drink, you would love that preacher. 
No, we want someone who will preach and expose God's word. You don't start with understanding and then find it in the Bible. You start with the Bible and then gain understanding. And this is why I and so many other pastors across space and time have such a strong commitment to preaching through whole books of the Bible on a regular basis. It's hard to grasp a chunk of scripture apart from everything else around it. And when we are charged with exposing the Bible as faithfully as possible, we have a special charge to not become a means of ignorance in God's people. I will not do that and I cannot do that. I must preach what the Lord has given us. A regular diet of selective study of God's word or preaching might impart truth and you might grow in it slightly. It might endear people to a pastor who preaches what their itching ears want to hear, but the danger is a level of ignorance that makes disciples of pastor so-and-so rather than disciples of Jesus. That's what we should really want. So that is the price of ignorance. Number three, we see the price of indulgence, picking back up in verse eight. But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. In arrogance, we exalt ourselves and our own desires. In ignorance, we blind ourselves to part of God's desires. And it naturally follows that we would live lives of personal indulgence. Look at verse 8. You see, the people who should be in the image of God have risen up as an enemy. They are now his enemies instead of his image bearers. They see a nice robe that someone has. What do they do? That person trusts them. They take it. They don't necessarily walk up and say, give me that. They find a way and they manipulate the situation. I will have that. Maybe they do just outright take it. Look at verse 9. They see a delightful house and they drive out the families that call it home. Listen to the descriptions here. A rich robe, a delightful house. This is on purpose. They are indulging here in their fleshly desires. In verse 11, Micah exposes the kind of preaching that they really want. Preaching that only encourages what they want. You want a preacher who's going to say, hey, have this and have this and have this. That's what you want to hear. It's indulgent. In verse 10, Micah reveals to them the consequences of their indulgence. Their uncleanness is destroying the land. And as a consequence, they will not live there much longer. Their indulgence is destroying their own lives and the lives of everyone around them, and they will go into captivity because of it. When we remove the restraint of God's word in our lives, we don't just become arrogant or ignorant, but we become indulgent in things that our submission to God might otherwise protect us from. When we rebel against God's word, 
We are removing the restraint that's designed to protect us so that we can indulge in things that will destroy us. When God says don't, it's not because he doesn't want us to be happy. It's because only he knows what will ultimately make us happy. What will keep us safe and others safe from ourselves and our decisions? He wants us to conform to his image. That's why we frequently speak of God as working everything for his own glory and for our good at the same time in the same breath. That's why we speak that way. What is to his glory is for our good. What is for our good is for his glory. They are accomplished in unison. The perfect image of destructive indulgence is what happens to many students who leave home and head off to college. As students, we are tempted to think mom and dad just don't know what they're talking about, or they over-exaggerate, or they're being a little too uh, nitpicky here. And what happens is you go off to college, and guess what? There's no restraints anymore. Mom and dad's not there. No one's watching anymore. But what happens, it's so funny, what happens is not just a slight participation. You just dive right into the deep end and go nuts. See it all the time in student ministry. They go nuts, indulging in everything, because there's no longer any sense of authority there to oversee. There's no restraint, only indulgence. Suddenly, everything that's been off limits is fair game. 2 Peter 2.10 speaks of those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Notice that connection there. It's not a coincidence. Lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Indulgence and rebellion. It goes hand in hand. So further down in that text, in verse 19, Peter describes the indulgent this way. They promise them freedom but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Rebellion against God is not freedom. It's slavery. And those who reject God say, well, you are restrained by your God, but I'm free. They're deceived. They are not free. Rebellion against God is not freedom. It is slavery to whatever captivates your soul. You were enslaved to it. Jesus died for us that we might be freed from our slavery to our former passions. We are not enslaved anymore to our former passions of sin. We've become indulgers of Jesus. We are enslaved to Jesus. He is what we want to fill our lives with. We don't want to be filled with strong drink or wine that leads to drunkenness. We want to be filled with the Spirit that we might know Jesus more. That's the price of indulgence. Here's the final price this morning, the price of deliverance, verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. This final cost is unlike the first three, in that for us, this is oh so sweet. 
for rebels to be redeemed, they must be delivered. This is a necessary cost if rebellion is not to be the final word. Do you understand that God could have cut it off there? You've rebelled, here's what you're going to pay for that. Arrogance and ignorance and indulgence. But God doesn't stop there. If he stopped there, that's the end. He doesn't stop there. There's another price. And this price, unlike the first three, actually serves to redeem his people. It's called deliverance. Micah gives a small glimpse of hope to Israel. He says here in verse 12, I will gather the remnant. That's a phrase that's used all throughout the prophets to refer to those Israelites who have not turned away from the Lord, those who have remained faithful, who truly belong to God. I will gather them. Like sheep in a fold, I will pull them together. Like sheep in a pasture. And then the Lord, it says in verse 13, the king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So God himself is the shepherd who comes to their head and breaches the gate and leads them out of their captivity. Does this imagery sound familiar? We read about it in the book of John. Jesus is the good shepherd. The king here, their king passes on before them. The the listeners of Micah, they would have said, oh, so the king of Judah or the king of Israel, one of them is going to, no, not that king. Not the king of Judah, not the king of Israel. The king of heaven, Jesus Christ, God himself will be the one to deliver them. He has paid the price for our rebellion and the rebellion of anybody. Listen to me this morning. Anyone in here who is a rebel, Jesus has paid for your rebellion if you will but trust him in faith and turn to him from your sin. If you will turn away from your former rebellion and submit to him as king and trust him in faith and follow him, he will save you no matter how well you follow because he has paid for your deliverance. He paid the price. The price of our deliverance was his blood on the cross, shed for the forgiveness of our sin and rebellion. Jesus died for arrogant, ignorant, indulgent people like us. Just like you and me. We're all in the same boat. And he did so so that we might return to him from our rebellion. That we might become humble instead of arrogant, that we might increase in the knowledge of God rather than resting in ignorance, that we might flee from sin and indulge in Christ. God is just to bake these costs into rebellion against him. If you have any doubt, look at how our sin doesn't just affect us. All throughout chapter 2, every instance of sin that he lists, he mentions, you're oppressing my people. You're oppressing my people. You're oppressing my people. He could have just said, I told you not to do that, but he doesn't. You're oppressing my people. You're oppressing my people. And he is just. But our just God isn't just just. He's also loving and has personally purchased our deliverance in Christ Jesus. He paid that final cost for us. So church, may we not approach God in arrogance, choosing what to hear, when to hear it, and how to hear it, but humbly growing in the knowledge of God. 
that we might not be indulgers of the flesh, but indulgers of the Spirit, resting in our deliverance from sin into life everlasting. Amen? Let's pray. O holy God, you who melt the mountains as you descend, Lord, you who speak into being all things that exist, you who, by whom all things were created, and without you was not anything made that has been made. Lord, you are high and mighty and transcendent, and we hear this morning, Lord, from your word that you are just. You do not allow your rebellious people to get away scot-free. You have built in consequences to our sin that affect us and that affect others, that we might know and recognize that there is a greater consequence to sin that is coming for us one day, your holy and just wrath. But thanks be to you, O Father, that you have sent the Son, Jesus Christ, to pay that final price for our deliverance, for we could not pay it. We pay in arrogance, we pay in ignorance, and we pay in indulgence, but we cannot pay the fee for our deliverance. Only you could do so, Lord, and you did. So that all rebels everywhere might be invited to return to you in submission and faith, turning from a life of rebellion and sin and clinging to you, the Savior of our souls. Lord, would you teach us and lead us in your truth, for your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in it? Would you give us an appetite and a diet that might expose us to the full counsel of God here in our church and at home in our personal studies? Teach us, Lord, about your marvelous son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.